We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Big one today. This is the interview that we did yesterday with Martin O'Neill live alongside North American Irish coaches with John O'Rourke and Enda Grehan. So Martin O'Neill, no real introduction necessary. European Cup winner with Nottingham Forest, played under Brian Clough international manager recently with Ireland and then in between Leicester City, Wickham Wanderers, Sunderland, Aston Villa, success at all these clubs and of course Celtic as well. So unbelievable to have Martin on, a great insight. Looking forward to hear what you think of this. Please let me know at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Here is Martin, enjoy. Martin, thanks for joining us today. Really excited to have you. Pleasure. No problem. The, the first question I have for you is probably a predictable one in, in your coaching journey and that's the influence of Brian Clough and I've read bits, I've seen bits and it, it looks and sounds as if you had uh, somewhat of a mixed experience with Brian Clough so I, I wanted to get your insight whether you enjoyed that experience at the time or was it something that you more appreciated as you reflected on it? Well uh, he came he came uh, in 1975, January of 1975 and he called us a two-bit second division cl uh, club at the time. Um, we were actually not doing too badly. And, uh, uh, but in 70, 1975, when I talk about second division, I mean the championship as it were now. And when I talk about first division, that will obviously mean the Premier League. So he came there and um, at that time, uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't make an immediate improvement in the team. It was a year and a half uh, down the line. We hadn't uh, hadn't made significant progress you would think with a manager of that caliber that we would have done but uh, when Peter Taylor joined him in the summer of 76 then it was a boost that he needed as much as anything else uh, we didn't know much about Peter Taylor other than the fact that they'd been successful at Derby but when the two came together it was uh, dynamic absolutely dynamic Peter Taylor was fantastic for Brian Clough and I'll explain that in a moment because um, when sometimes when you're uh, when the players have gone home, you'll need someone there, you know, to keep you keep you uh, amused in many aspects. And Peter Taylor was uh, a very funny guy, and uh, so um, they had a great relationship. Uh, I'm not saying that Peter Taylor could have managed in the same way that Brian Clough did. In fact, he couldn't have done. I don't think anybody could really have done that. But the two of them together made things happen, and then we went from 1976-77, promotion, 77-78, uh, the championship, the, the, um, the Premier League, as it were now, the uh, first division, then two European Cups in successive years, two League Cups, uh, playing in the World Club Championship. So when you ask me, did I enjoy it, I think, uh, I, I, I think there would have to be a, a moronic part of me not to have enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic to know that every other week 
uh, it looked as if you were just uh, packing up a, a, a bag and, uh, and a passport and heading off and playing European games. It was just really, really, really terrific. And uh, when we weren't doing that, then Brian Clough would be taking us off, maybe off to Mallorca, it seemed to be his favourite haunt. So we had a great, great time. And um, so in terms of enjoyment, I absolutely enjoyed it, enjoyed the camaraderie. I thought, as I've said often enough to John Robertson, I thought I was going to stay 26 for the rest of my life. Now, did I always get on with him? I think is the point you made. Not necessarily. I, um, I jokingly have made this one up. He said that I was uh, arrogant with nothing to be arrogant about. So, yeah, but uh, in terms of enjoyment, it was absolutely and utterly fantastic. Fantastic four or five years. Really great. I, I think... I think your point about the appreciation might be something. I, I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that I, along with maybe a couple of others, uh, maybe appreciated. Um, you started to take. It sounds crazy, but during our time, I still I felt that Liverpool, the team that Liverpool had, uh, Dalglish, Suness, Hansen, players like that, there were probably the the best side. Maybe not just in Britain, but probably in Europe. But we seem to have the Indian sign over them. We seem to beat them in big and important games. But that said, the very fact that you're competing at that level was terrific. Um, because we had been winning two trophies per season for a couple of years, you were inclined to take things for granted. So uh, I'll tell you when, uh, you, you miss it when it's not there. And uh, when the team broke up uh, the following year, players left, good players left, Trevor Francis, Larry Lloyd, Players like that, there left, and I think that I think the team was broken up a wee bit uh, too quickly. Uh, that aside, it was fantastic, and uh, Clough was a sensational manager. Yeah, let's let's go back to that double act then with Peter Taylor. I'm fascinated by how managers set up their staff. Were they were they two different people? Were they different personalities? Did they view the game differently, or was it just that they managed different people in different ways? Well, in, in those days, you know, you're going back now to um, uh, Brian Clough and Peter Taylor getting together at Hartlepool, then going on to very good success at Derby. But if you, uh, you're, you're probably a wee bit too young to know that, that, that at that stage, that there weren't, there were, they may well have been the first, as you call, double act. Brian Clough was prepared to give Peter Taylor uh, um, a, lot of, a lot of credence for a start, um, a big stage himself, you know, call them as, uh, like you have an assistant manager or people did have assistant managers in those days, but probably none with the sort of profile that both Clough and Taylor uh, had. And uh, when you are uh, that successful, then it's paving the way for other people to uh, to go in that direction. So, but in terms of, of what they had together, Brian Clough was um, the phenomenal motivator Peter Taylor was actually a very good spotter of talent. And Peter really would put the players together, as he did with the likes of Peter Shilton. And that, you know, getting Peter Shilton to come was great news. Uh, everybody knew that Peter Shilton was one of the great goalkeepers in, in Britain, if not in European football. Kenny Burns, changing Kenny Burns from a centre uh, forward at Birmingham to a centre back. And taking on Archie Gemmell, um, you know... Listen, it, 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 magnificent, really magnificent. So Taylor, Taylor was the spotter of players and good around the dressing room as well too. But uh, there's no question that, uh, that Clough, was, uh, Clough was the main guy.
that Forest team obviously thrived underdogs. You thrived in underdogs with Northern Ireland in the 82 World Cup. Your initial managerial roles at, at Leicester and Wickham were pretty much predominantly underdog roles as well. Whenever you got to Celtic, did you did you have to change your your messaging with players, uh, you know, now being the favourites to win leagues and games? Well, you say that. And um, when I, the, I went to Celtic in the year 2000, they had lost the league by 21 points uh, to Rangers. Rangers were very, very strong at that time. And um, they had some world-class players. De Boer was there. Um, you're talking about Klaus, the goalkeeper, who had won a European Cup medal with Dortmund. Um, Amoruso, you could go through the list of players um, that they had. They were just fantastic. And um, so there was a bit of work to be done, really, with the Celtic side, who had just been um, they kind of demoralised. And during that particular year of demoralisation, they were beaten by uh, Caledonian Thistle in the, um, in the Scottish Cup, which um, gave way to that incredible phrase up in, up in Scotland which was written down there, wasn't it? Um, Super Cali, go ballistic, Celtic are atrocious. And uh, so I, I, when I came into the job in the June, Mark Viduka, top quality player, who went on to do well at, at Leeds, he wanted to leave the football club um, because he had uh, been fed up. I had spoke to him. He was in, he was in Australia at the time. Um, and I said to him, well, if you don't want to come back, that's fine. It's okay. Just like, yeah, I don't want to come back to the football club. Fine. So we sold him. And with the money, I bought uh, Chris Sutton. And then Chris Sutton turned out to be a brilliant, brilliant player for us. Great partner for Henrik Larsson. And, um, and he was, um, Sutton was instrumental in, uh, in things happening for us at that time. First of all, um, great partnership between the two of them. Sutton could play in a number of positions. But that, not just that there. Uh, Henrik Larsson was recovering from a broken leg um, and he was just coming back to a bit of fitness. So maybe it took him a little while to get going. But thankfully, we won the first couple of games. And by the time that we played Rangers, I think maybe in our fifth game, we won a great, glorious match, 6-2 then. And that gave us the confidence to go on. And even though they hammered us in a match later on in November time at Ibrox, and not, uh, not surprisingly because of the team that they had, we went on to win the league. But it, was, it wasn't just as easy as that. I think once we established ourselves as a decent team and started to get um, into Champions League football in the next couple of seasons, then, um, of course, trying to, trying to maintain that to make sure that, uh, that you stay on top of Rangers was something that was, uh, that that was uh, really important. Yeah, ex expectations of the fans at a club like Celtic and a club like Sunderland. How do you manage that there on a daily basis? Well, well, Celtic, of course. I mean, you, you've Celtic house sixty thousand people, and uh, and it is a phenomenal football club, one of the greats. If if they were down in the Premier League, my own particular view is that they would go from they could you know, could build on to the stand. They could go from 60,000 to 80,000 overnight without a problem. As the course of Rangers, who housed 50,000 people, could easily accommodate another 20, 25% more if they were. Okay, that's not going to happen at this moment, but major, major clubs, the both of them. Sunderland, remarkably, although for their history, 
um, 73, from the last time, 1973, the last time they won the FA Cup as a second division side. They have faltered in years, but they, Sunderland, do have the, 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 the support base to be a really great club. And uh, it's a team that I supported as a kid growing up, primarily because Charlie Hurley played for them. And Charlie Hurley was a big, big Irishman that was um, supposed to lord over everybody. The ball playing centre half, they talked about, who was voted a couple of years ago as Sunderland's player of the century. So I wasn't, wasn't that far out in my judgment. But um, Sunderland's a great club. It's just been, it's been badly run for a number of years. And that, that certainly doesn't help. Whenever you're, I suppose then, you're looking to buy, looking to get players in and you're trying to, you mentioned there about Viduka not wanting to, to play and, you know, the recruitment being such a big, big role in, in clubs today. How difficult, how challenging is it to, to manage upwards? Brian Clough's day away back, Brian Clough decided who to come in and he might, if he, if he chose to, he might tell the chairman uh, later on, almost when the player was in the door, saying, oh, by the way, you need to fork out £250,000 because we're getting, like, Peter Shilton, he's, at the, he's just at the doorstep for us. And um, I'm possibly slightly exaggerating to make the point, but, uh, but managers had much more power. Now, of course, there's a, 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 a whole different ballgame. Money has played a significant part, naturally. Uh, there's a lot of jobs there for people now. You have CEOs to answer to. You have directors of football to answer to now. And everyone seems to have an opinion about the game. I don't see, I don't see too many CEOs or directors of football losing their jobs after three or four consecutive defeats. But um, that's the nature of the game now. And, of course, the player situation has changed uh, completely. In my day as a player, we had no power, no power whatsoever. And it might have been unfair, of course, that we all thought it was, and um, with no power whatsoever. There weren't that many agents around. I think Peter Shilton arriving at us at our football club at Nottingham Forest in, what was it, 78? Um, uh, he, was, uh, he was the first player to have an agent. And, a, and, a, and um, so... Um, uh, agents now are running are, are running the show. Players have got uh, uh, they've got a load of power. I probably need the responsibility to go with it. So lots of changes have taken place. Some great things have happened in the game. Obviously, I'm delighted that players have more power, but it's gone to the extreme now. We've, we've all just watched. I asked you about the Sunderland documentary before, and I know you haven't watched it, but we've all watched the the transfer deadline day with. Uh, no, Jack Ross hasn't played any role, and it's the man, it's the chairman and the chief executive and the director of recruitment who are who are doing anything. In today's game, as a manager, is there anything you can do to help that signing uh, go through by anything you say or do, or is it just down to the you know is it the dollar or the pounds? <clears throat> oh no, don't don't, don't get me wrong. I, I I I'm not saying that the manager is powerless. That those are the changes that have evolved over the over the over the seasons. Uh, I, when I when I was managing, uh, when I was managing at uh, Wickham Wonders, uh, managing at Leicester, managing Celtic, I was in I was in charge of the football club, and uh, uh, I remember the the owner of Celtic, Dermot Desmond, still there now at this moment, obviously a major player in proceedings, 
uh, he he took me on as a manager from 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 Leicester and said, "I want you to take ownership of the football club." Well, it was like uh, like manna from heaven. So, in other words, he would trust me, or hopefully would do, uh, trust me to run the football club as well as I could possibly do. And I think that those those that that was really important important for me um, because that's the way I had done it after difficult early days at, at Leicester City where there was a power play in the, in the boardroom at the time. Um, but overall, that's the way I wanted. So I had, and the same in my, in my days, certainly in my first couple of years at Aston Villa, uh, Mr. Lerner, an American, came in and uh, because um, he, he saw similarities between Aston Villa as a, as a, as a club with the fans, the base with Cleveland Browns, of which his father had owned the, um, the NFL team. And um, he had great, uh, well, he had great ambition for the football club. But again, he allowed me to run the, the show in the, in the way because he didn't, wouldn't have had that experience of that. And that, uh, up until um, the latter stages of things, was, was great again for myself. So when you go, sometimes when you head to another football club, and you see the changes that have taken place and that you are maybe you don't have the same control again. I think that, that that's that, that's when you really do have to, as you called it, manage upwards. But what about the challenges? Interested with your thoughts on this when you get to national team, international management. And obviously the, the less time you have with the players is a big challenge. But then without having the ability to bring players in and out and having a small pool like the, like Ireland has, what's more difficult, the time problems or the recruitment problems? Um, well, <clears throat> naturally both, if you can say that. Um, first of all, but you go into international management, you accept that there's no, there's no recruitment. It's as simple as that there. It's not as if to say that you can buy someone. Of course, some of the, uh, the rules have changed now where... Um, where, uh, where grandparents can be involved, and if, if the one is of your particular nationality, then you can have that um, kind of a battle with that. Um, we had a couple of players, for instance, Jack Grealish at a stage who was born in England, born in Birmingham. His father was born in Birmingham as well, too. So, in other words, even though he had played underage football for um, for the Republic of Ireland. It was not cut and dried that he would uh, that he would um, you know commit at senior level to uh, to the uh, to the national cause and and I understood that completely because it's not as if to say he had been born down in Cork or somewhere like this here that was not the case he was actually born and his father wasn't born there either so that 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 was it and he chose to we obviously wanted to try and persuade him myself and Roy. Uh, um, uh, met him, wanted to do this, but the, leaving the decision entirely up to him, and this is what he chose to do. The similar situation with um, with Declan Rice. Declan Rice again had played underage football. I'd seen the potential in him even at 18 years of age, and in fact he had uh, he had done some training with us at a very early age. That wasn't the case. It was a matter I I hadn't thought about the problems coming up ahead. But um, he played in three friendly games for us now as well too. At senior level, did remarkably well. But of course, that opens the that opens the door for for England to come calling, uh, and and so they did. You don't have the time. It's really as simple as that. 
Look at it. Just think about it. Just think about this. For instance, let's say a week. So let's say you're playing Thursday, international game on Thursday. And you've got Thursday. And then your next game, the two headers, would be Sunday. So you've got even if the game's at home. So you, you, the players are playing Saturday. And some, if you've got some uh, players playing in the Premier League, might be playing in the Sunday. So those players are coming in now. They're coming in maybe late evening on Sunday evening. And uh, some of them don't arrive to the, uh, to the Monday if they're playing late on the, uh, and can't get flights out. So those, some of those players will have to sit and rest as, as, you know, because you have to look after the players. They don't have to rest. The clubs would be asking you to do this as well too. So that would be a day gone. You can have them there to walk through, um, um, uh, you know, cer certain set pieces and things like this here. But the most important thing is to try and get them into a frame of mind. And with the Republic of Ireland, as be, has been the case for quite some considerable time, despite the fact that they have had, through the ages, phenomenal footballers, phenomenal players, individual players, you're still having to get them to believe that they can win a game against, let's say, we beat Germany and the world, uh, the world champions for 90 minutes, that they can compete and can try and win a game. And um, so it's as much psychological as anything else. But you, uh, uh, but in terms, you can't do anything with their fitness. You can't do anything like that. The only time that you can get involved with that is that if you, when we qualified for the Euros in 2016, that was really absolutely fantastic. Not just in the qualification, but knowing that you had the players for a couple of weeks beforehand. And then it became like a club issue, you know, that you had them... You could deal with the training. You could know what they're doing. Altered the build-up of the games, and uh, and that was uh, that was unforgettable, really. Was there anything you were doing in that period of time that was trying to build the relationships with players when you weren't there? I mean, were you calling them? Were you doing club visits, texting them? How did that work? Yeah, I I, I spent <clears throat> most of the players that was involved with were playing in the championship. Maybe some even outside the championship. We didn't have the luxury of a lot of players playing in the Premier League. In the likes of, uh, um, for instance, some of the players that we had who performed brilliantly uh, in the Euros for us, like Hendrik and, uh, and Brady, ended up getting their moves, not so much by what they were doing at club level, I believe, it's what they did for us. And um, Brady's goal against Italy for us to qualify uh, for the latter uh, out, of the group, uh, out of the group was just terrific, great, great moment. However, um, your point is this year that I would be going to a lot of football matches midweek, uh, a lot of championship games, watching the players, and occasionally um, I didn't really want to bother them a great deal other than the fact that said maybe phone the occasional one up during the week and say, listen, saw your game on Saturday. Mostly the players would get to know anyway that you've been to the games. But I enjoy that part of it, although that, that part, that that um, going to the football games, totally different to, uh, to being involved at club level in the sense that you're going to go and watch one player playing to see how he's, how he's doing. Sometimes I was at the games when the player was either sub and didn't get on or wasn't involved at all at club level. But I didn't want to ask the manager on a Friday night, well, please, can you give me a wee bit of inside information? <laughs> I I wouldn't have done that myself if an international manager had asked me. So uh, there was no point in, um, 
knowing that reciprocation wasn't going to be available. Roy Keane intrigues a lot of Irish people. I think hero of mine as well. Like what when you hired him as your assistant coach, what was the what was the role, the primary role that you wanted him to fill? Well, it's a very good point. Well, we <clears throat> we had. I don't pretend to know Roy too well, and even now, after the length of time I've had with him, I would say the same. And that's, I think, that's uh, pretty good news. It's not as if to say that we were in each other's pocket every single day. But I had done some work with him at uh, a little bit of punditry work on television. We'd covered a couple of Champions League games, and um, and we just talked about he wanted to get back into management again. So I had this opportunity to go and and uh, and um, manage the Republic of Ireland. I knew that he would divide opinion because of what had happened in Saipan in 2002. I think there's no point in me explaining that. I think anybody who's listening in probably would be aware of that, but the, the big fight that took place, or supposed, well, let me say contretemps between um, the manager and himself. And, um, and it, it's real shame, really, because... I, Roy Keane staying on there, you never know what might have happened to that team because they did very, very well. However, I wanted him to join up and I wanted Roy Keane to be Roy Keane or what we, what we would all interpret Roy Keane to be. In other words, a driver of a team. Um, uh, it, the relationship I felt, I felt that because it was international football and that we'd only meet up for certain periods of time, that that would work. Um, if, but I was also aware that Roy, as a manager, would probably want to make his own decisions about things. So that, and that, and when we talked about that sort of difficulty, that that might occur because, like me, I want to make the decisions, and that's that's what I I'd done all my career as a manager. So, but he accepted that. That's that that was that that was the whole point, and that. Um, and for Roy to be to be Roy, remember we're talking about we're talking about a group of players who would have grown up with Roy Keane as being their hero, as you've just mentioned there yourself. So, but that you know that 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 sort of hero worship can uh, can disintegrate if somebody's not passing on the right messages. But Roy Keane was terrific for me, absolutely terrific, regardless of of uh, people talking about falling out with players in the latter stages of our time there. He was absolutely terrific. And uh, he, he, he should take great credit for, for what we achieved as well too. An iconic figure, a driver of a football, uh, football team in the sense that Manchester United had one of the great managers of all time, and Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson. But there's no doubt that he needed, he needed that on the field. And Roy Keane gave him that. He drove them on. He didn't drive them on for one season. He drove them on for about nine or ten years. And that's fantastic. And for all the great players that Manchester United possessed, and they possessed players probably with a lot more natural talent than Roy had, but I don't think that they would have had the same success if Roy Keane had not been the captain of the side. That's my view. And he was terrific for me. And... Um, and Roy is Roy, and uh, hopefully Roy will come and manage again at some stage or another. Maybe it's, we might all have learned a little bit about ourselves as much as anything else. And I hope that he is successful again because um, um, I think that I think that he can be. I think that he will be, and probably just needs that opportunity. 
Uh, last couple for me, and then I'll, I'll bring Enda in to do some questions from the crowd. A lot of changes in the last five, ten years with psychology, data. You mentioned the money, the finances. Coming the you've, you've witnessed a lot of change. Uh, do you think as coaches in the coaching community, we are overcomplicating the game or we're in danger of overcomplicating it to players? Absolutely, no question. No question about it. No question. So there's a the short answer. But I'll, 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 I'll expand on that. No question about it. If, for instance, the game, <clears throat> you talk about the game, the, talking about the changes that have taken place in the game, there's been a back pass rule. There's been lots of things that have happened in the game. But players adapt to what is around them. So, for instance, I'm not saying that, that we had, as players, we won European Cups without access to, let's say, we didn't know the European teams in front of us. I mentioned a, a game that we played against Dynamo Berlin which we did not know the players before we played the game. We soon knew that they were very, very good when we played them at our place because they kept the ball for long periods and thought, whoa, this is, this is difficult. Well, we didn't. Whereas now you have got all the access. There's no, within, with a game being played in, in uh, Puerto Rico, you can, you, can, you, can have that, you can have that there downloaded. You can have the player there at your... At, just just at your fingertips now, if you want, if you want to uh, peruse that particular player and his, his abilities and things like this here. So it's all there. Everyone has this. It's not as if to say someone has, has, uh, has got a head start. It's all there for everyone. You still are dealing with players as well too. Brian Clough, was, who will go down in history as one of the, the great managers that has, ever, that has ever managed in Britain, and certainly in European football, he preached simplicity. For a complicated guy, he preached simplicity. He was, it was simple. It was really, the game was simple. You get the ball, you know what to do. When you have it, you pass it on to a red shirt. Generally, you want to pass it to somebody who can do something with it, if that's the case. Like we had a little winger called John Robertson, who was absolutely phenomenal for us, but he wasn't the only player that we had. Great players playing in the team, Woodcock, Francis, Archie Gemmel, players like this here, really good players, players who could stand uh, the test at, in, in any era. So what I'm trying to say to you, there's a lot of information now, and you sometimes can, you can, that can be a fear of overload. And of course, there's a lot of science now involved in the game. And not for one minute do I not think that that is important. Of course it is. But then you have that you have players, you have uh, uh, you have players uh, listening, listening now to to a scientist who has got a totally different view. Let's say to uh, to the the coach, the coach who might know the player a wee bit better in terms of those things. Not to say that you're not playing players who are injured, absolutely not. But there's a, there is definitely overload in the game. Now you can have a fine balance. You really can have a fine balance. You need to have your players out in the field to play as much as possible. You cannot. And in our day, we played a lot of football matches, a lot of games. And today, there's still a lot of games to be played. Players do need to rest. They need to rest up. They need to, they need to look after their bodies, which I do believe that the general player now, if you look at Liverpool, the amount, of, the amount of work that they do during the course of the game and they come up the following week, that is fantastic. 
really. So you could learn a lot from that. Manchester City you could learn a, a great deal from as well. But there is an overload. And I don't think sure that those players at the very top of the game are being overloaded. That's the whole point. And um, I don't think... And there's also an element of trust now. When you've got, when you've got trust in players, um, you talk about the Liverpool manager, you talk about the Manchester City manager, he sends those players out. He knows now what they can do. They have been winners for him. So they know what they can do. So he trusts them. And the greater the player you have, the better the trust. Brilliant. Just along those lines, with players changing, with, again, the finances, it's changed the players as much as it's changed coaches as well. Going back to those underdog teams, and you mentioned then about getting Celtic up and running, are players harder to motivate today? And, and if so, how does a coach navigate around that, a young coach, and start to build up their skill set to connect with those players? Well, I, 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 don't think, I don't think that the great players playing in the game need, need a great deal of motivation. That's why they're great players. They are, for the most part, they're self-motivated. But they still need someone. They need the coach to tell them how good they are. They could maybe have a couple of bad games, for instance, and they want the coach still to tell them, by the way, you're, you, know, you are absolutely brilliant. And there's a way now, I think this is the most important thing, there's a way to approach a player now that is definitely different from, from, the, from the approach that was taken as I was, uh, as I was involved as a, a player in the 70s and early part of the 80s. That sounds a long time ago, but players were... were the, I, I felt that players had to take... Because, remember, going back to what I said, we had very little power in the game, and therefore you were playing for your livelihood every single day, and you... You probably, not that you thought about it when you played in the games, but you probably needed the bonus money. The bonus money might actually be bigger than your wages uh, and things like this here. So, but you still played for the great love of the game. Now, you were, generally speaking, you still look for that praise, that little bit of praise that you were getting, but sometimes you had to really earn it. You had to fight through a lot of, I would say for one of a better word, negative comments by the manager, if that's the case, if it's a new word here, Rolligans it was, it was in our day. And, and you had to fight that. You had to fight through that. Otherwise, you might have collapsed. But a lot of managers felt that maybe that is how they did it. That's how they did it. And that has changed. I think now there's more a case of the players, because I don't think the players can accept to a great degree the, 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 type, of, the, the, the type of Rolligans that were dished out in our particular day. That has certainly been a change in the game. No question about that. And, um, and the players, hopefully, would respond to a lot more praise if that was the case. So, and sometimes, sometimes you might be praising a player when perhaps maybe he doesn't deserve that sort of praise. I tended to want to go the other way. I wanted to, I wanted to praise the player, but knowing that he actually deserved it. He deserved it at that particular moment. And if it carried on for a couple of great games, then he deserved it for the length of time that he was doing superbly. So there is, a, there is definitely a difference now in terms of how, how to manage young players. And, um, but the great players can still manage themselves. However, they still need guidance along the way. And, um, and that's where the great coaches come in. Outstanding. OK, great. 
Enda, if you want to club back in. Yeah, we can hear you loud and clear. So do you want to take a, a couple of questions from the coaches that are in? Yeah, I will. Uh, Martin, thanks for that. Appreciate it. No problem. Um, is, uh, is Henrik Larsson the best player you've ever managed and coached? Well, that I, I think that's that, that is um, that's a difficult one. For instance, um, because I, Henrik Larsson was a magnificent player, number one at the start, <clears throat> magnificent player, and I was so pleased to see when he left Celtic after six or seven years there at the football club um, that he went on to Barcelona, and he and he was playing in a star-studded team at Barcelona. Maybe didn't play every single week, but he came on and changed the course of the final of the uh, of the Champions League in um, whatever year it was against Arsenal, I believe. And um, and then in the latter stages of his career, he goes to Manchester United in the Premier League and scores goals. So that nothing gave me more pleasure than to see those things because Henrik Larsson was a fantastic footballer. Henrik Larsson could score a goal. He was brave. He was, he, he, uh, considering he, you know, when you looked at him, he didn't look, he looked slight. He, he was angular. He, was, he, he wasn't small by any stretch of the imagination. As brave as a lion, could score a goal, could turn with a ball, could, and, and, had, and had an excellent perception of the game. But mostly he, could, he went into areas where it was really absolutely imperative that he'd maybe stick his head in somewhere and score goals. The, the game, he played fantastic football for, for during my time there. He was already a hero by the time I'd got there, but he certainly, he certainly um, uh, got into superstardom, really, during the couple of years that I was involved with him. And the final in the, U, your, the UEFA Cup in 2003, where we played... Um, Porto should have beaten them. Um, uh, that's another story. But uh, we got beaten 3-2, but Henrik Larsson was outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. And may, that may have been the best game ever. So if you can, if you, and among all the great games that he had played for us, if you can do that in that sort of stage against Porto, who went on to win the, the Champions League the following year with essentially the same team, then he was a terrific footballer. So, but I've had a number of, of excellent players, some players that I've signed, some players that I've inherited, but all my clubs that played very, very important roles for me during that time, that um, it's it's hard to distinguish. But Larson was a top-class, a top-class footballer, top-class goal scorer, as brave as a lion. Couldn't ask for any more. And and I'm not always saying that we were in each other's company. In fact. Uh, and uh, in fact, we kind of ignored each other for for long periods. But I I met really? up with him when we were doing uh, some punditry work in Russia uh, for the World Cup, and uh, and um, Henrik said that was the most I had talked to him in uh, twenty minutes than I had done during all my time uh, as managing. And um, uh, it was quite funny actually, really, because he, I said he did most of his talking on the football pitch. Very good. Martin, you grew up in a, a family of accomplished Gaelic football players and you enjoyed success yourself playing uh, GEA. Uh, what advice would you give to a young uh, soccer player today who's been asked to specialise in soccer at a young age? How young are you talking about? Uh, 
I mean, you hear it all the time, 12, 11, 13 in Ireland, especially obviously with the GA, you know, specializing in one. Do you, do you, uh, what, what, what advice would you give to a young player? Would, would you advise them to keep playing GA or keep playing rugby and soccer or GA and soccer? Like, what, what would be your advice? Because obviously you grew up playing it yourself. Well, I, first of all, I, I, I love GAA. You're right. I, I, I came from a family of GAA players. My dad helped found the, uh, the, uh, the Gaelic team in our village, Kilray, in, um, in County Derry. And my two brothers played for, for Derry as well, two older brothers. So I grew up, I, every Sunday, we'd be off watching them either at club level. Uh, my father would take me to the games with my older sister. This, this was great. And I maybe used to nip up to the bathroom and used to commentate in the matches, pretending I was Michael O'Hare as well too. So, but Derry always won the All-Ireland when I was commentating. And, um, uh, but uh, Gaelic, I loved, I absolutely loved it. One of my, uh, one of my um, uh, real disappointments in my, in my life still remains to this day is getting beaten uh, in the Hope final. Well, I was playing for St. Malachy's College, Belfast, and we were in the Hogan Cup final, which is the college's final. Got beaten by College to Chris Ree in Cork, um, who had a very good side, but we should have murdered them and got beaten in the game to my eternal disappointment. So I loved it, and that was, that was under 18, under 19 football at that time. So I was still playing that at that stage. So, and I know things have changed, and I understand there's pressure on, on young people now to, to make decisions uh make choices earlier than than ever before uh but there is room to uh, there there is room to improve i'll give you a little example and it's, and it's and it's it's probably not the analogy you're looking for but it might give you an idea i went to i went some years ago quite some years ago now to open um a grammar school football pitch up in, towards manchester and um and I did so, and it was a real honour. Then I got to speaking to about a group of 14-year-old lads round about me. And about six or seven of those players at that stage were going off to football clubs. They were going off. They had already been chosen to go to Everton, to go to Manchester City, to go to Manchester United. And the future looked rosy. And I thought, well, wait a minute, if, if, if stats are right, that you know, these lads, it's going to be a wee bit more difficult than they imagined just because that they'd been chosen and they'd been given this, um, uh, this idea, I suppose, uh, put into their head that, you know, that they had already made the grade. Well, let me put it this way. Not one of those players made the grade in any shape or form at all. So I kept an eye on it. But, but what was important is this here. If you enjoy the Gaelic football, please play it. If you have got this driving ambition to become a professional player... There's no reason that you cannot uh, do both unless life has changed that dramatically that I'm, that, that, that I'm not in touch with it. I do accept the point that young, young players are now being asked to make decisions uh, more quickly. I never played in a soccer field until I, was, uh, until I went to St. Malachy's College and played for um, a Down and Connor team that consisted a lot of lower sixth lads from St. Malachy's. And that was the first time I'd ever played soccer on a on a uh, on a grass pitch, and I was seventeen. Uh, Knowing what you know now, Martin, uh, with coaching and management, uh, what words of advice would you tell the young Martin O'Neill uh, when he was starting out on his coaching journey? 
Right. Well, well, well. First of all, I, I I assume that we probably think unanimously here that that coaching is is essentially to improve players. That's the idea: is to impart your your not just your knowledge, your um, uh, your parts of your personality a little bit, but essentially the the, the message is to try and improve improve players. Now, obviously, if you depending on what your job is. If your job, uh, let's say, is a, is, a, is a coach at a professional team, but your job is to, to coach the underage team, the under, the, let's say the under 18s, your job essentially then is not to worry about winning, whether you go on and, and win the Youth Cup or something like this here, but your job is to provide the manager with players that can come in and play in the first team and help in a, in, a, in a matter of time to improve the first team. That's really your job to do. And that's the job when I went, when every club I went to, I used to speak to the, the youth team coaches and say, your job is safe. You probably be more safe than, the, than, than, than my own. At the end of all, I'm not here to shift you, but after, let's say, we, we, we live to tell the tale that we're still here at this football club in about four years' time, if you haven't produced something, of course, we're going to have, we're going to, have to uh, have a look at it again. But players, not to put coaches at that uh, underage level, to put them under pressure at all. Absolutely not. Their job is to provide them. And of course, during the course of, of coaching is to also provide them with a, a competitive spirit. I think you have to be. You have to have a competitive spirit about you as well too. That was the main thing. But of course, as you go up, as you go into first team, your job is, unfortunately, to win football matches. I say unfortunately because anybody who thinks differently that, that, that uh, is, uh, is kidding themselves. Your job is to win football matches. That's what it is. So now you're hoping that what you have available to you, your personality, your know-how, your experience, and maybe your, uh, 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 hopefully, a bit of self-confidence, whatever you can imbue, you're hoping that those things there will make you that the coach you want to be, and as a consequence, improve players to win the games that you that that, that you need to win. That's it. And of course, like everything else, first team coaches at club level have the opportunity maybe to buy players. Uh, it didn't take it didn't take Pep Guardiola too long at Manchester City to realise that there were some uh, some uh, players who cost a lot of money in his first year there that weren't up to the task. Had he the opportunity to go and coach them and tell them, well, if he, I think he must have thought that after a year with him, if they're not going to improve, I need to win. So I'm going to change the players. Hence spending, what was it, £52,000 on a fullback, which even a couple of years ago might have been unheard of. He buys, Kyle, he buys Walker from Tottenham Hotspur because he feels as if I'm not, I might not get the time to do those things. So this is where the coach at first team level is always fighting a battle to try and improve players, of course, for, for, but essentially to win games. You'd love to be able to do, and to, to combine the both is uh, obviously is utopia. But as a young coach coming into the game now, if I was given a role as a, 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 a by, let's say, let's say I'm 30 odd years of age, and I'm given a, a, a role at, at a, a Premier League team or a championship side to go and, um, and be the under-21 manager or the under-18 manager now, 
uh, of the team. That's what I'd want. I'd want to work with the players every single day to try and improve them so that they and 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 get enjoyment out of that of sending these players on. That in maybe in latter years they might come out and say, "I, I was delighted with the two years under you." That's essentially that. But as a as a, a young coach, I do feel it's very very difficult now for the young coaches to try and come through. And this is where I feel for them, really do, particularly, you know, young Irish coaches now who've got lots of, lots of talent. I was watching that at, at underage level when I, in my latter stages there of, of managing the Republic of Ireland, down to the games, coaches were excellent. They'd, we um, used to hold a couple of seminars and their views were really worth listening to. And I was just hoping that they might get the opportunity to go on and coach at um, at a at a senior level, where that ability which would would uh, come through, and I've no doubt if given an opportunity and a little bit of luck, which you probably need along the way, all of those things could have could have happened. But uh, the the chances of it are happening certainly in the big league now are are pretty slim. I didn't want to leave on a negative note, by the way. Far from it. I have got the utmost regard for young coaches uh, coming out. And wanting to do it, generally speaking, doing it for the love of the game, a game that they dearly love, and and and, and wanting to try and improve players all the time. That's the that that's the nature of it. Martin, last question from me here: uh, Who's the best leader you've ever coached? The best leader, probably would would have to think about it. Uh, for instance, you know that. You know that manager, that uh, ginger-haired manager who's managing um, Celtic at the moment? I, I signed him twice. I signed him, I'm talking about Neil Lennon. I signed him twice. And I signed him when I was at Leicester. He was playing for Crew Alexander. Uh, he had been a young kid at Manchester City. And he, um, he had had a few injuries. In fact, he had a, such a, a, a bad back injury that he had to get his back fused and hence that little funny run that he had. But um, uh, I signed him for £750,000 to Leicester, where he was terrific. Very, very seldom captain of the team, but a driving force nevertheless, an absolute driving force. I obviously saw that then at Celtic, that he could improve our team. So around about Christmas time of my first year there, having put in countless bids for him, we get him for, what was it, five-odd million pounds as well, too. And he, again, very seldom captain of the side, but the driving force of the team, real, real driving force. And I had a number of players who drove the team on. Chris Sutton was a great influence as well, too. Lots of the, you know, we had this, but Neil Lennon, because I've had him twice in that sense, I wouldn't assign him the second time if I'd not believed in his quality and um He's gone on to prove himself not only a real quality footballer during his time, but obviously a quality manager as well too. So he was a real driving force. But there were, there, I had driving forces at my team at Wickham Wonders, you know, that don't get any mention because they 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 um, they uh, were not household names. Uh, I had a player I signed for some uh, a little bit of money from Brentford called Terry Evans, who. In his first couple of games for me, was absolutely hopeless. And uh, I thought, geez, what have I done here? And then he, he said his timing was out a little bit because he hadn't played so often. I thought, well, that's the flimsiest excuse I've ever heard in my life. 
But anyway, and then he proceeds to carry the team for about 18 months after that, nearly on his own back. He was fantastic. Great. But I have a lot of, lot of great, lot of great boys. Um, and uh, each one doing a job at that time was absolutely important for the team. And of course, I, I could not have done these things. I could not have gone on to Wickham to these had I had not some players there behind me. So the players, don't forget, they're the ones that do it. So your motivational skills are fine, absolutely great. But some of these players, if they believe in you completely, they will go through the proverbial brick wall for you. And uh, those players did that there, but they were terrific footballers in their own right. Wickham, Leicester City, Robbie Savage, £400,000, would have done anything for you. And um, so all of these players that deserve a right, maybe it's because I signed Lennon twice that uh, he, got, he got that extra special mention. Brilliant, Martin. Thank you very much. I'm going to pass you over to uh, John O'Rourke now for just the closing remarks. And I think he has one question as well for you and we'll close it out and uh, really appreciate the time. It's no problem. Martin, just so you can answer these real briefly. Uh, the first question we got in that I have is, you oversaw a hugely successful period at Celtic, but do you have any regrets about your time at the club? Uh, regrets? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, big regret, of course. Two, two regrets. One, not winning the UEFA Cup final against Porto, obviously. Got beaten 3-2 an extra time by a side that, uh, um, if you watch it back, I honestly, you, you talk about, um, you talk about, um, uh, no, I'll I leave it at that there. Maybe that's for another day. The goalkeeper goes down for, uh, he, he went down in the last five minutes of the game went down, he didn't know which ankle to hold on to, then he held on to a different one. Then they had about 15 doctors come on. I honestly <laughs> thought they were bringing on the helicopters as well too. And uh, it, was, uh, it was gamesmanship, I'll say that word, uh, of the highest order. So I regret, I'd love to, it been great for the football club to have won that because no, I, no doubt at all that I think that the side that I managed, the best team that Celtic ever had would naturally the Celtic side, the Lisbon Lions, because they won the ultimate prize, the European Cup. But the side that I had at that for a couple of years, um, well, certainly could sit along, could, could sit by their side, let me put it this way. No team will ever be as good as that, as the 67 side. But this side that I had were great, and, and they deserved to win the competition and maybe go on. And we got a bit unlucky in a couple of the Champions League groups, but that's the nature of the game. Sometimes you have to make your own luck. And obviously losing the league, losing to Motherwell in the last day of the season, uh, sorry, the last league game of the season, went on to win the Scottish Cup the following week. So those are natural regrets because we lost the games. But overall, I had the time of my life there. And had my wife not taken ill, I would love to have stayed on until they'd got, uh, eventually, until they would get fed up with me. Excellent. Last question, then, just real quickly. Are you looking for a job, or are you happy with your TV work right now? No, I'm, no, I'm happy doing this because um, you asked me to do it, and it's an absolute pleasure to have done so. Um, but um, I'll see what develops. I don't know whether I want to be part of the audience just yet, but I'll see. <laughs> Excellent. Martin, on behalf of the uh, North American Irish Soccer Coaches Association, I'd like to thank you for taking the time today 
And uh, obviously, we've been setting this up for the last week, and it's been brilliant. You've been a, a very gracious uh, guest, and we appreciate you taking the time. I'd like to wish you a happy you Easter to, to you and Geraldine Thank and the family. You, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and anybody who's uh, listening. Um, but um, I am delighted to go through it with only just the one mishap, I think. I am. I, I had the phone by my side to phone my daughter just in case there was going to be a massive problem. But well done to you. And following your instructions, and there was really good. So pressing buttons there above me, fantastic. I feel as if I'm an old hand at this now. <laughs> Excellent. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. No enough. problem. Thanks so much to Martin for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, with the questions, I mean, there's there's so many questions you could ask him and so many things. We didn't talk really about Sunderland or we didn't really talk about Aston Villa. Uh, the, the aspect of Brian Clough really, really intrigued me because it's something that I've read a lot about. I've watched a lot of documentaries. I wondered how much he was influenced by Clough and in what ways and I thought that was really interesting, the perspective on, you know, he enjoyed working with Clough, but the fact that the players took it for granted and maybe that was the genius of Clough. He had the players that were outperforming or overperforming at such a level that they just expected that success against that great Liverpool team and against those European teams. So right now it seems a million miles away in Nottingham Forest. and But I think that tells you about... Probably a little bit of background into Martin O'Neill's philosophy when he when he goes and overachieves with teams and, and has overachieved with teams in the past. Another aspect that I thought was really interesting was that aspect on overcomplicating the game. Sometimes the media do coaches like Martin O'Neill a disservice by alluding to the fact that they're not open to these ideas, but they are open to these ideas. I think it's very clear after listening to that that Martin is definitely well aware of the advantages of scouting and the advantages of science. But he just wants to make sure that how they communicate that with players, it doesn't become the main thing. The main thing is about getting the most out of people. The main thing is about driving others. The main thing is about, when he was talking about Roy Keane, about impacting uh, an environment every day. And I thought I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was really, really refreshing as well. Because sometimes as coaches, when we do look in from the outside, we do overcomplicate things. We do look for things that that may not be there and in in doing that I think it's I think it's healthy but you have to be careful that that you don't yeah you don't lose the right or you don't lose the most important thing and that's something that Tom Crane talked about last week in basketball and that game day management make sure you win that game because at, at that that upper level the result is very very important and and it counts for so much and it counts for so much in terms of credibility it counts for so much in terms of time so I thought that was great. The results versus development was was very intriguing as well. And you know, to combine both would be the utopia, Martin said, but at the same time he was well aware that you've got to impact the team on a match day. So I thought it was unbelievable. I'd love to hear what you what you took away from it, what resonated with you. Please let me know at Gary Kareen on Instagram, at Gary Kareen on Twitter. A massive thank you for Don O'Reardon for setting that up and for John O'Rourke and Ferenda as well for all their hard work and making that happen. And so stay posted. Hopefully we'll have a couple more of these ones as well. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Please stay safe and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, 
sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.